You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome back to the midweek edition. Today we are diving into a passage that we've already covered kind of in the last two episodes just a little bit, but we didn't really zoom in in particular on these passages. So as we get started, let me say something very pastoral of me. This podcast episode will be short. And the reason that is pastoral is because whenever us pastors say we'll be brief and to the point, we preach the longest messages we've ever preached. So I apologize in advance for possibly lying to you. Let's go ahead and dive in. Today we're going to talk about names in the Bible. Uh, now, if you're like me, you name your kids cool names, right? So my son's name is Beckett. Uh, it was my wife's uh, name of choice. Uh, it took me a while to get into it because the only Beckett I really knew was Kate Beckett, who was a detective in the TV show Castle. So I was like, I don't know, the only Beckett I really think of is a girl. I don't know, it's going to take me some time. And then uh, and then I was like, well, we could call him Beck for short. And I was like, absolutely not. So there's a band named Beck. You've probably heard their music. I don't know why. For some reason, I just can't get into it. So it's like, no, I don't want to think of that band. <laughs> what I think of... My son. He will only be called Beckett. Uh, and then his middle name, Miles, was more from me, um, which sounds pretty cool, Beckett Miles. Uh, but that name um, is uh, pretty nerdy of me. Uh, if you've ever played the game Sonic the Hedgehog, then you know Sonic's little buddy Tails. Tails is his nickname. His real name is Miles Prower. Tails. Miles Tails Prower. So if you listen to how it's actually pronounced, it's Miles Prower. Miles per hour is what they're going for. Anyways, um, cool names for our children. So Beckett Miles, one cool name my wife liked. The second one, cool name I liked. Put them together. And then my daughter, Jericho, I used to um, know someone uh, who was a girl named Jericho. Uh, I know that's usually kind of more of a guy's name, um, but uh, I I just always thought that was like a really cool name for someone to have, you know? So like, I'm not even thinking like the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and judgment on Jericho. You know, those, those aren't necessarily going through my mind. It's not like Jamin named Jericho as like a, a city that will be destroyed. Rather, it's just like, I really like the ring to that. Let's go ahead and do that. And then Janet, uh, is her middle name, which comes from uh, Jody's mom. So when you look at the names of my children, you find that we named our children, well, Janet, you know, in honor of someone else, but otherwise names that we enjoyed. However, when we read through the Bible, we notice that if we were to translate some of people's names, like the names have to do with their part in the biblical story. Uh, which is a little confusing sometimes. You're like, well, how did they know that this person was going to do these things down the road so that they named them this when they were born and suddenly their story progressed this way? And and what do we do with all of these things? And 
that's uh, just caused me to, to pause once more before we leave Genesis 17 um, on these particular particular passages we've we've already kind of moved through a little bit to say, what is it with naming in the Bible? Clearly, they're not always just thinking like, oh, that's a cool name. Let's use that. Rather, the names mean something a lot of the times. Why is that? Uh, and how does that work out? So let's jump into ancient culture once again and see what kind of conclusions we can draw. Genesis 17. Let's go ahead and jump in as we move through here. Um, do note that a lot of times on the podcast, I just call Abraham Abraham because that's the name that we know him by. But if we've been paying attention in the biblical story so far up to Genesis 17, Abraham is not his name yet. It's Abram. And Sarah is not her name yet. It's Sarai. So this is where everything changes from Abram and Sarai to the Abraham and Sarah that we all know them as today. Genesis 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Now, just as a reminder, let's pause right there really quick. Abram means exalted father, which was always kind of funny, you know, uh, because this guy hasn't had his own child um, outside of Ishmael at this point. But otherwise... Exalted father has maybe sounded weird for most of his life because his his wife, Sarai, has not been able to bear any children. So if names mean something in the ancient world, this exalted father guy sounds a little ambitious for this 99-year-old man who only has one blood child through his wife's servant, uh, Hagar, him and her son, Ishmael right? Remember this whole soap opera thing going on? So there's that. Um, But with this in mind, things get a little more ambitious because now his name has changed. This guy with one blood son, uh, this guy's name, Exalted Father, suddenly God's like, I'm changing your name to Abraham. So he goes from Exalted Father to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. <laughs> now, my my old uh, Old Testament um, college professor used to make a joke about this. He'd be like, just imagine him walking into the coffee shop the next morning, right? Hey, guys, how you doing? Oh, hey, Abram, how are you? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not Abram anymore. Abraham. You know, just imagine them, like, putting the Hebrew together. Oh, hold up, bro. You changed your name 
from exalted father with your one child to father of a multitude? Are you are you crazy? So that's the renaming that's going on here. That's the significance behind it. And God renames him as a prophetic promise. You are going to be a father of a multitude of nations. Therefore, I'm changing your name to mean father of a multitude. All right, let's pick back up in verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. Now we're going to skip a little bit ahead here, because starting in verse 9 to verse 14, that's all about circumcision, which we covered in last week's podcast episode. So go back and listen to that if you want to hear that. We want to focus in on names. So let's pick back up in verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. All right, so let's pause again. We've now just had Sarai move, or yeah, Sarai move to Sarah. Now, technically, um, if you were to translate it, Sarai and Sarah both mean princess. So really, the language hasn't changed, but it's almost like God's like looking at her name already and cementing it. Your name means princess, but now rather than your your uh, own parents naming you princess, know that like I'm now giving you a new name and I will restore that truth that your name will be princess. And why is your name going to be princess? Well, just as Abraham has this prophetic promise that he will be the father of a multitude, Sarah, you are going to uh, give birth to kings, people who are going to come out of your line, out of your genetic line. It's going to be nations. It's going to be kings. So you, in this kind of like prophetic ideology, like you're a princess, you're royalty because royalty is going to come from you. Now, most scholars are going to kind of find themselves on this boat that Sarah's name is is about being princess or prince or queen or, you know, some some kind of word relating to royalty. But there is one other uh, perhaps important hyperlink in the Bible that uh, scholars like to, to occasionally mention as well. It's the fact that Sarah's me- uh, name is going to be somewhat used in Genesis 32 when Jacob wrestles with God. And some of the reason that you'll see this is like, so if you're going to go to Genesis 32, um, you find this uh, word uh, where Jacob and God are wrestling and it says, uh, God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven, which is Sarah, you have Sarahed with God and with men and have prevailed. So here you see uh, the possible connections that Sarah is kind of a hyperlink to this moment. Uh, here's, here's the possible connections. One, 
Sarah has been kind of striving with God for some time, right? Being told that she's going to have a baby and it's just not happening. So you see this striving, this this Sarah-ing with God. But on top of that, you also see uh, in both stories, there's the renaming, right? So in our story, Sarai is renamed Sarah. After Jacob Sarah's with God, he is renamed Israel. So it's almost like, remember Sarah, how she is going to give birth to kings? Well, in the same mention of the nation of Israel, which will be full of of the kings uh, and, and royalty, is this mention of Jacob having his name changed to Israel because he Sarah'd with God. So I know that all sounds a little way a little weird the way I'm explaining it, but there is this possible connection between Sarah's name and the striving with God later in Genesis 32. So that's another important uh, thing to to point out about possibly the interpretation of of her name here. Another important thing to to point out: this is the only time in the Bible where God renames a woman. So you know, right right here is a very uh, monumental moment. It's usually the woman that names the child that they give birth to, uh, which uh, uh, surprised me, you know, because back in the day, you're always thinking of like, oh, it's such a man's world. They probably always, oh, this is my child. This is what his name is. But that's actually in the Bible, it's almost always the woman who names a child. So women naming children is not unusual, but it is unusual that this is the only spot again in the Bible where God renames a woman. Uh, and that's important to note because it shows us that like this important feature of God um, uh, speaking prophetic destiny into people via name, it wasn't just reserved for men. Right here, you see it happening to both Abraham and Sarah. Okay, so now we've covered Sarah. Let's uh, continue with uh, verse 17. So Genesis 17, 17 Abraham's just been told that his wife is going to have a baby and she's super old at this point. And so Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. So right there, we have another prophetic name, right? Uh, We've got Abraham, father of a multitude, Sarah, a princess over that multitude. And now we have Isaac, which we covered last week, but it means he laughs. He laughs, ha, 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 loud and strong. What is that, Mary Poppins? I don't even know what that is anymore. Sorry, um, what are we talking about? Isaac, right, Isaac uh, is, <laughs> sorry, we got a super sidetrack there. Isaac's name is He Laughs. And now what's the prophetic destiny on that? It's actually, uh, you know, God speaking into what just happened. He tells Abraham a prophetic word and Abraham responds by cracking up. Come on, I'm going to have a kid. So now 
uh, as kind of like a reminder to him about this prophetic word and about God's power and just a reminder as to like how he responded to it, thinking that it would be impossible. It's like, all right, for now on, the name of your child will remind you of this moment. Every time you say him, you're going to remember you laughed and I was serious and I pulled it off. So Isaac right here becomes a, a prophetic symbol or a memory, might be the better word, a memory of how Abraham reacted to this moment. So again, what we've seen so far is naming is important. It's not just a kid who who has a name for um, because it sounded cool. Okay, it's not <laughs> it's not like modern day. Um, instead, these particular names are like what it what is the meaning behind it? Let's speak meaning into their lives and prophetic destiny into their lives. So. That catches us up on some of the naming going on here and opens us up to more questions about naming in the Bible. So let's uh, kind of go through just a, a quick understanding of how names work when we come back. Okay, naming. Namings in the Bible mattered a lot more than they mean today. For example, my name, Jamin, is the other half of Benjamin. Now, I'm a real Jamin. Make sure you understand that. I've met Benjamins who go by Jamin instead of Ben, and they're the phonies. Just want to get that out there. Okay. Now, Jamin, though, uh, you know, in Hebrew, it's uh, Hamin, and it means either right hand or south. So this is how you can tell, like, I wasn't named by meaning. I am right-handed, but I, I don't think my parents are like, ah, oh, a right-handed child. Uh, or it may be more like, you know, my right hand. They sit at my right hand, something like that. Either way, I wasn't given a name because of meaning, just like my children weren't. My middle name, Daniel, was given to me so I would have a normal middle name if I didn't like my first weird name just like my other brothers were given normal middle names in case they didn't like their first weird J name. That's our family tradition. Um, and maybe your name means something. Maybe your parents gave it to you out of meaning. I'm just saying like uh, a lot of times, at least in American culture, sometimes we're not always thinking of meaning as much as we're thinking of, of names that uh, we enjoy the sound of. But if we were to look in ancient culture to try to figure out uh, how they went through the naming process, here's some of the things you'll find uh, in which we already covered this. Um, in the Bible, typically it is the woman who names the child. Uh, it could be performed by the father. In fact, because of what we've read so far, you would think that maybe the father names it because Ishmael was named by Abraham, not by Hagar. And I'm not entirely sure what the reasoning for that is, perhaps because uh, Hagar was, um, you know, uh, Sarah's servant. So 
while she was a wife, she wasn't considered to the fullest extent maybe a wife. So maybe Abraham's like, mm, I'm naming this child. I don't know. But Abraham naming Ishmael is actually a bit more unusual. Like I said, it does happen. Occasionally the, the man does name uh, the child, but um, often it's it's the mother. So like Jacob's uh, Jacob's children, let's just take a look at them to, to kind of make a, a point. So Jacob and Leah have some children, and here's what it says in Genesis 29:31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my afflictions, for now my husband will love me. Now this is a whole new soap opera based on the fact that a guy's practicing polygamy again. Um, but uh, yeah, what we just saw in that is she named her son Reuben, which means, see, a son. And why did she name him that? Well, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Hey, my sister can't give you babies, but I can. See a son. Reuben, see a son. So uh, the the name that Reuben has carries like, look what I have for you, a son. So again, you see like the name has to do with uh, a particular piece of this child's life. And it's the woman who's doing the naming. Uh, further on in verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon, which, uh, Simeon sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for heard. And that's what she just kind of gave this, uh, prophetic word about, sorry, uh, gave this, this illustration about because the Lord has heard that I am hated. I've named my son heard Simeon. So again, the meaning there. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name will be Levi. And Levi, if you were to translate it, um, it sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. So now my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him my child named Attached, uh, Levi. So again, the names here are significant about what's going on. <laughs> it doesn't end. She conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Uh, it just seems like this soap opera is not working out for her. Uh, her husband loves her polygamous sister more than he loves her, even though she's the one bearing ch children. So when she finally has that fourth child, she's like, you know what? I'm just going to praise God for this child. And so he gets the name Judah, and Judah uh, sounds like the Hebrew word for praise, which my wife Jody, that is the, Jody is, from what I understand, if I remember right, the effeminate version of Judah. So to some extent, my wife's name is like the effeminate form of, of praise. So uh, right here, you then see her stop having children after this. But it was the woman who did all the naming of these children. And it was uh, every child was named for a significant reason in her life. 
Now, I know that we get the point, but let's just continue to put ourselves in this world and continue into chapter 30. When Rachel, so this is the one who hasn't bore children, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Hey, does this story sound familiar? Like like father, like descendants. <laughs> They're doing the same thing that Abraham did, and they already have plenty of soap opera going on. Now they're adding in a little bit more. But just as Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to create children through the ancient customs that were put in place for like surrogate mothers of sorts or surrogate wives. So here you have uh, uh, Rachel saying, uh, oh, I'm going to have a child. You just use my servant for it. Uh, so let's uh, continue on that. So she gave him her servant Billa as a wife and Jacob went into her. It's not Jacob knew her. Jacob went into her. Again, there's as, as weird as it sounds, it doesn't use this more intimate, uh, um, it doesn't use the more intimate language of sex in the Bible to talk about this uh, surrogate wife uh, because it's it's serving a purpose outside of that kind of deeper intimacy, which again, is that soap opera element. It's not right. The Bible's kind of showing like, I think it's showing us like faults in humans falling short of of a standard of how they should live. This is not... God did not set up the world for polygamy. And Jesus later is going to talk about how, like, how was it in the garden? It was one man, one woman, united for life. That is what marriage is because that's the way God originally set it up. Anyways, that's not related to naming. <laughs> uh, but let's continue. Um, I know. I said it was going to be short, and now here I am doing the very pastoral thing that I said I would probably end up doing. Uh, so... Billa has this child and Rachel claims it as her own. So then, uh, sorry, Billa conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. And Dan sounds like the Hebrew word for judged. So God has judged me. God has danned me. <laughs> sorry, I said Dan. <laughs> God has damned me and heard my voice and give me a son. So that's where that name comes from. It's connected to uh, the significance and Rachel's the one doing the naming. Then Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel's taking this new surrogate child. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali which sounds like the Hebrew word for wrestling. Again, the connections. With mighty Naphtali, I have wrestled. I have, with mighty Naphtali, I have Naphtalied with my sister and have prevailed. And Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children. She took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now Leah's doing the same thing. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad, which sounds like the Hebrew word for good fortune. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I for women 
have called me happy. So she named his name Asher. You get how it's going. Asher means happy. Obviously, we could keep going, but by now you see the literary pattern that the Bible's using. Here's who had the child. Here's what they said about the child. This is what they named the child based on what they said about the child. So just to be clear, we're now getting in the understanding of like naming in the biblical world. It usually took place near birth in the Old Testament. And uh, in, in, uh, in the New Testament, it seemed a little different. So in the Old Testament, you're born, you're named. But in the New Testament, it seems to happen on the eighth day. And that eighth day is the day, if you remember from last week's podcast, it is the day that you are circumcised. Genesis 17, 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. So in the New Testament, tradition had uh, um, seemed to become that you have the child, then you wait until that circumcision, and as you circumcise them, like their name is declared. Now, I'm not sure what the waiting's all about. I don't know if that's time to like kind of see the child's personality. You know, that, that actually is a modern thing. I've met people today who are like, yeah, we had this baby. Oh, then what's her name? Oh, we haven't named it yet. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean you haven't named it yet? You know, we're trying to figure out what, what kind of name they should have. So, some people practice something like that. I don't know if that was the idea, uh, that you waited eight days to name the child. Actually, now I'm curious. Let me look at a commentary here. Ah, yeah, okay. So this is actually unusual in the Bible. In the New Testament, there are two people kind of back-to-back. It's supposed to kind of parallel each other's stories. Um, you see John the Baptist is born, and then eight days later... He is circumcised and, uh, and, and named. And then if you were to fast forward, Jesus actually is the same thing. He is born, and then eight days later, he is named. So those, those are two stories that are paralleling each other. And so we're thinking like there might be like some kind of ancient custom now that's been developed that you wait for eight days before you name the child. Uh, but uh, at least the New International, <laughs> the NIGTC, the New International Greek Testament Commentary, uh, would say that this is uh, unusual. Uh, it says, what is unusual is the association of name-giving with circumcision, which is otherwise unattested in contemporary Judaism. The earliest Jewish example of name-giving in connection with circumcision dates from the 8th century. However, the giving of a name some days after birth was certainly a Hellenistic custom, and it is quite possible that this influence was being felt in Palestine. Uh, so right there, you have them saying possibly they were influenced by uh, um, other cultures of their time to wait those eight days, um, but otherwise, from a Jewish perspective, yeah, it wasn't until the 8th century where that pops up. So, yeah, that's just interesting that, that we find kind of that that shift in uh, between the Old Testament and then the way that John and Luke, sorry, John and Jesus in the Gospel of Luke receive their names a little bit later. Okay, so um, yeah, now we're getting back to the whole naming thing. Um, so far we've learned like naming these children can be, sorry, not even children, 
God changes Abraham and Sarah's name. But naming can talk about prophetic destiny, right? It can talk about character, just as these children had kind of like, here's here's uh, their history, the character behind them, if you will. Um, and yeah, I, I know I just said this, but yeah, changing your name, uh, whether it's God who changes your name or someone else who changes the name, that again is kind of like a, a prophetic symbol of destiny. So maybe one of the more common ones to think of is when Jesus uh, changes uh Simon's name to Peter, right? Well-known story, Matthew 16, uh, is where Jesus uh, asks them, like, who do you think I am? And Simon says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus uh, congratulates him on knowing this, for only God could have revealed it to him. Uh, and then he gives him a nickname. He tells, He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, which uh, the the word Peter has the sound of like Petra, which is is word like rock. So he's like, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that right there, that's this huge prophetic word spoken over Peter. Like Jesus changes his destiny. Look, dude, I know Simon is your given name, but I am renaming you. Peter, you are now a rock, uh, and it's on this rock that I'll build this church. And this is definitely not about names, but since we're on this story, I just think this is so cool. Michael Heiser, uh, a Bible scholar, has done a lot of um, interesting investigation into this passage. And since the mountain that they're on at this point, um, it, well, needless to say, let me just give you the quick version. He sees the possibility that this is kind of like a double entendre. Peter, you are a rock and uh, I'm going to use you to build my church. But it's also possible that uh, they were at Mount Hermon when Jesus was telling Peter this. And Mount Hermon was a place where you had, uh, if I remember right, lots of kind of false idols. And it was a place known throughout ancient history as just like the gates of hell almost. It's where the angels of the book of Enoch rebelled against God and the whole thing that happened in Genesis 6 with the sons of God sleeping with human women, giving birth to the giants known as the Nephilim. We've talked about that on previous podcasts. All of that right there is taking place in Enoch on Mount Hermon. So there is this possibility that there's this double entendre in this prophetic word. Peter, you are a rock, and I will use you to build the church on this rock, Mount Hermon, where the gates of hell are. Why Why would we think that they're on Mount Hermon? Uh, well, for different geographical reasons based on the story, but because he says, I will build my church, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Why bring up the gates of hell? Possibly because you're standing where everyone has thought the gates of hell to be. So anyways, I just bring that up to see like the naming there being a very powerful kind of double entendre of uh, prophetic word and destiny going on right there. Okay, so we've now talked a lot about, about naming. Uh, I want to talk about kind of the power that that brings in another light in just a moment. 
Okay, so according to the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, which we've been using quite a bit on this podcast, uh, the act of naming implied the power of the namer over the named, evidenced in the naming of the animals in Genesis 2, 19 to 20, or Pharaoh's renaming of Joseph. So throughout the Bible, you do see that sometimes naming and renaming implies authority, right? So the mother just had a child. Who's in charge? The mother or the child? Well, the mother, she's the one doing the naming. But like the Bible starts us off with understanding, uh, like we're co-laboring with God by naming the animals, but that's also giving us authority over the animals. This is not just uh, like a random deer. I have actually, as a human being, been given the authority to name this a deer. And so this deer is in some way submitted to me because it ex- uh, its name exists because I was given that authority over it. Now, here's something interesting that I've come across uh, a few times in, in my studies. Uh, God's name is recorded in the Bible to be Yahweh. You know, I am who I am. Some scholars, and you have to understand, there's so many reasons out there as to why people think... <laughs> Even in scholarly studies, there's so many reasons out there as why people think that God gives his name as Yahweh. I am who I am. Um, But one of the reasons that some scholars have put forth is, again, naming something implies power and authority over it. So maybe God's answer as to what his name is, is to give not a name so that they would understand like, no, you don't get my name. You don't get the power to name me or anything like that. I just am who I am. (laughs) So there is this possibility in the name Yahweh that some scholars would say, maybe this is so, uh, so Moses, when he asked, what's your name, he doesn't get an answer so that he has no feeling of power or authority over Yahweh, over this one true and only God, because he should never be able to, uh, um, feel like he could claim that authority or anything like that. So who's God? I am who I am. That's my name. That's what you get, Yahweh. Uh, So that's just one possibility there. And I know that we could probably just say more on naming in general, but let's start to wrap this episode up. Uh, We've looked at names that are very focused on kind of like, why were you born or prophetic destiny? Uh, there are some names in the Bible, though, that sometimes make me wonder, like, did they just like the sound of these names? Because not everybody gets uh, um, not everybody gets names that sound super important. So, like, uh, sometimes it's personal characteristics. Esau uh, was a hairy man, and therefore he was named basically hairy. That's what kind of Esau means. Uh, we see, uh, some other names that seem to do that as well. Some of them have animal names. So Deborah means bee, Jonah means dove, Rachel means ew, not like ew, but you know, like the animal. Uh, and then sometimes you find like plant names. Tamar means palm tree. Susanna means lily. So it does seem like it's possible, and I just took all those examples again out of the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary. But again, those are just some more examples of uh, did every person's name always mean something, or 
could it just be simplistic names? We don't know because we weren't there. We don't know if you were stung by a bee while having that baby, which would be super unfortunate. Or if just like, oh, look at this cute little bee. Ah, that's a great name, bee. We just, you know, we won't know. Some names are sentences, so it's not always just like brief and to the point. Um, if you know a little bit of basic Hebrew, then you know that L in the Bible means God. And so like when you see an L-E-L attached to names, it may not just be like a nice sounding um, suffix, but it may actually be referring to God. So like Ezekiel, right? You got L in there. So you're thinking God. Ezekiel means God, may God strengthen. Uh, and then other names, you've got Elijah, Elijah, Ishmael, Nathaniel. So you get these uh, attached into it. Um, so you just, uh, the more you know about uh, the language, which again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, the more you would pick up on some of these compound names and, and things like that. Names sometimes get attached to places. So, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. Names sometimes get attached to parents. This person was the son of so-and-so. Um, so sometimes naming gets a little bit in that kind of territory as well. Um, actually, uh, let's rewind to Elijah. I mentioned like L means God. So Elijah. But what's interesting is that Yah in there, that's actually uh, Yahweh. So the sacred name has been put into his name. So you basically have like God Yahweh, Yahweh, God Yahweh. His name is just like all about God. So if you were to translate it, it'd be, you know, Yahweh is God. Okay. One last thing before we, we wrap up here, because I know we've been going for a while. I just want to point out something that, that stood out to me that I, I just thought was very interesting. And this is partially because I've been studying the Song of Solomon lately, which I know sounds weird. <laughs> Jamin, why are you reading the erotic poetry of the Bible? Well, that's actually the reason why I'm reading it. So I've heard interpretations, you know, that say like this is all about the love between uh, hum humanity and just uh, the joy of pleasure and sex and all of that. But then I've also heard interpretations that say it's allegory. It's about God and humanity coming together. And I got to say, even though it struggles in my mind to see this almost erotic poem being about God, there's just this like hope inside of me that, that that's the direction it leans, simply because, you know, um, it truly is a very uh, intimate poem. And if it's about God, then it, it's really kind of, uh, it's about finding like those deepest parts of God that you could find. And that is not in a sexual way. That's not what I mean, right? I'm talking allegory. Allegory is where things represent something else. Uh, the, um, the Bible Project recently did a podcast episode, a few episodes on wisdom, and they saw that uh, Song of Solomon could be a wisdom book, which is about what if uh, um, God were to come together with humanity, what would that be like? What if Solomon had got it right in an alternate universe? Solomon had got it right, and rather than join himself to his thousand wives and concubines, what if he had just joined himself to the source of wisdom, who is God? 
this could be the poem of that alternate universe, this alternate history. That's the way that they kind of described it. And I'm just so hopeful for that. And part of the reason is when I read the, uh, when I read like the Christian mystics of old, one of the things that stands out to me about these saints is they were just so in love with God. And, you know, it, it makes sense. A lot of them gave up romance altogether. God was their intimacy, if you will. St. Teresa of Avila is one of my favorites. I mean, she's just uh, so passionately in love with God that um, it almost has this intimate feel of Song of Songs, not in a sexual way, but in a way that when I read how her relationship with God is, I'm just like, man, I just wish I had that. What does any of this have to do with what we're currently talking about? It's this. I, I, as I was studying for this um, episode, I was reminded uh, that Solomon, that name means peace. But uh, at one point in 2 Samuel 12, 25, the prophet Nathan was sent a prophetic message to Samuel. And uh, he gave him, God told Nathan to rename Samuel Jedediah. So this right here, just as Abraham was renamed, uh, sorry, Abram was renamed Abraham for a prophetic reason, just as Sarai was renamed Sarah for a prophetic reason, and Peter, Simon renamed Peter for a prophetic reason, here you have Solomon renamed Jedediah for a prophetic reason. And what does that mean? It means beloved of the Lord. God is telling Solomon, you are my beloved. And if you know a popular verse from Songs of Solomon, then you maybe your mind's already ticking in the way that I'm thinking of it. But in Songs of Solomon, you, of course, have you know this verse, uh, Song of Solomon 6, 3, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And that just strikes me. Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't know <laughs> what to pay attention to there. But from an allegorical state, for the Jamin who longs for the Song of Songs to truly be about this intimacy that we could have with God, like I'm like, that's that could be like that prophetic word, maybe, on Solomon's life, right? I am my beloved's. He is mine. What is Solomon's name that God spoke into him? Jedediah, which again means beloved of Yahweh. So that's just one possible connection there, among many others that allegorical people would would speak into. Um, so yeah, there's just a little tag on to the end of this. And I did it. I told you to be short. And like a pastor, I preached forever. So I'm out. Catch you guys. <laughs> catch you guys Sunday, which I will be out of town. Marie Schott from our church will be speaking. And as long as everything goes according to plan uh, and someone hits the record button, we will have that up on the podcast uh, probably Monday. So if you're not at church, you can catch it there. And we will see you soon. Bye.